So, if um, you haven't been here all summer and this is your first time, just FYI, we have been studying through the book of Exodus this summer, so you get to enjoy the last installment. So, find your Bible and open to Exodus 35, if you would. This is, we've been moving through it pretty, uh, pretty big chunks um, just to make it through. It's a 40-chapter book, and it's a short summer, so... Uh, like I said, we're coming to the last lesson in it, which will be chapters 35 to 40, and which I hope some of you have read ahead of time. Um, just a heads up, too, um, if you, as if you didn't already know, next Sunday is, is going to be our first big Sunday and, um, of the semester. And with that, also, we're going to kick off what's going to be our Sunday morning study for both the fall and the spring, and, uh, which is going to be the Book of Romans. Romans. So I have never taught all the way through Romans before, so it'll be a challenge for me. I hope it'll be rewarding for you. Um, next week, I'll try to give a, just an introduction to the book as well as to finish it on time in the whole school year. We're going to have to dive right in first seven verses of the first chapter. I'm telling you that um, because I would actually, I always encourage you, like I did with this right here, I encourage you to read it ahead of time because you really do get more out of it uh, if you've read it and you come and we, we dive deep into it, you really already have a lot of the background in your mind and you get more out of the study. I say that to say this, I want to encourage you this week not just to read Romans 1, 1 through 7, but go ahead and read the whole letter to the Romans this week. And uh, lest you think that's just way too much, I would remind you that it's a letter, not a book. And that when it was written, it would have been circulated. It was starting in Rome, but once they read it, they would have circulated around the churches, and, and uh, there weren't that many copies of it. So somebody who could read would stand and would read the letter aloud in its entirety while the church gathered to listen to the letter. So uh, you can do it. I have faith in you. Anyway, back to regularly scheduled programming. If you were able to read these chapters ahead of time and were an astute and careful reader, you may have... Uh, felt like it was a little bit of deja vu when you, when you read 35 to 40 because it may have sounded quite a bit like chapters 25 to 31 um, that we studied a couple of weeks ago. And, and in many ways, these two sections of the book, 25 to 31 and then 35 to 40, are almost like mirror images of each other, um, in some ways verbatim, because... When, 25 to 31, it was when, when Moses was up on the mountain and he was receiving from the Lord these instructions, very detailed instructions about how to build the tabernacle. That's 25 to 31. Belaboring all of these, and not, I mean, the Word of God is perfect, but not belaboring in a negative sense, but just comprehensively all these details about building the tabernacle. And then you get to 35 to 40, and it's the implementation. It's them actually now doing in all that comprehensive detail what Moses was receiving up on the mountain. So they sound exactly alike. Because uh, you can read this and be like, I feel like I've already read this. And the answer actually is yes and no. Uh, but because of the similarities of these two sections, it can, and I felt it this week, create a little bit of difficulty in how to teach it. Uh, because I feel like I've already taught this before. I did it two weeks ago. Um, 
But as I said uh, in the group the other day, there are some good things to note here that we didn't necessarily spend a lot of time on two weeks ago. So uh, the, the, the um, yeah, anyway, I'll explain what I mean by that when we do it. Let's read a little bit and get in it. So 35, we're going to read from two different sections in, in this passage. So we're, first we're going to read chapter 35, verse 20, through chapter 36, verse 7. And then we're going to flip over and read a few verses out of chapter 40. Okay? So let's begin. I'll begin reading in chapter 35, verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. And so they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns and, or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands and they all brought uh, what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine uh, twined linen. All the women whose heart, hearts stirred them to use their skills spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and the spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil, for the fragrant incense. All the men and women the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded and by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. And then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And he, he has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Oholiab, and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary, shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, every one whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They kept, they kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each one from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for the doing of the, of the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material that they had was sufficient to do all the work 
and more. Now flip over to chapter 40, and let's just read verses 16 through the end of the chapter. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames, put it in, put in it poles and raised up its pillars, and he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it in the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat on the ark above on the ark. He brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil on the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned, the, burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. They went, up, they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle of the altar and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till till the day that it was taken up for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys let's pray oh Lord this is your holy inspired inerrant infallible sufficient clear authoritative and necessary word and uh, Lord I ask that even as we think about um this passage, that, that as we read it to us, sometimes it can feel so tedious in some ways. We can almost, because of it is so detailed, we can almost think that there's nothing here to see. Lord, there is. So would you give us eyes to see it? Would you please give us minds to understand it? Would you give us hearts to embrace it and love it? Would you give us wills to obey it? Would, would you give me the help that I need to teach? And would you give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to this church in this word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what I want to do, I, like I, f I feel like I've already preached in many ways this passage because we saw it in 25 to 31. And when we covered that, I, I was really focusing on the, the theological importance of the tabernacle itself and how it finds fulfillment in Jesus Christ and, and the whole movement of the biblical story. I feel like I've done that. So what do you do with this one? What I want to do with this one is just uh, draw out from it 
just some general practical themes that we see in it that, that I think um, we find clearly here in this passage and that we see picked up again in the New Testament. Just some general practical um, themes for the Christian life. So if you are taking notes, here's what I would like us to consider in, in these chapters. First, um, I believe one general theme we see in verse, I mean, chapter 35 is this, this simple truth. God equips us for his work. God equips us for his work. We will see that through the reappearance of our old friends Bezalel and Oholiab. Uh, in a few years, I think some of you need to name your son Bezalel. Bring it back, baby. Um, God equips us for his work. Second, I think in chapters 35 and 36, one work that God equips us for that is overwhelmingly emphasized is the work of generosity. So God equips us for generosity. We're going to spend a, a good bit of time on this theme of generosity because something I read in chapter 36 reminded me uh, of, a, of a very important passage in 2 Corinthians 9. So I want to take this as a springboard. We're going to turn over to 2 Corinthians 9 a little later on and dive deeply into what Paul says about generosity in that passage. Then we're going to come back and the third truth I want to consider from chapters 39 and 40 is God blesses our obedience. God blesses our obedience. I don't think you can miss that truth in the last two chapters. One more introductory word before we dive into these points, and it's directed to that last point I just made. God blesses our obedience. For some of us, that idea might not phase us. Could be a good thing, could be a bad thing, because you, bad, that, the bad way that that might not phase you is you may already be of a legalistic point of heart posture, and you might think you might hear God blesses our obedience in a legalistic way, and think well, I must do, I must do to earn God's favor or anything. I don't want you to hear that. And God blesses our obedience. Um, for some of you, God blesses our obedience might sit a little sideways with you because. Because you are, and this is a good instinct, you have such a grace alone instinct about you that, that, hey, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because of what Christ has done for us and his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness, his obedience, not my obedience. But it is worth remembering, as true as that is, it is worth remembering that even while all of our hope and all of our standing and all of our sufficiency before God is entirely 100% based on the obedience of Jesus Christ in our place, the New Testament still has a place for something called the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith, which, by the way, is going to be our theme for fall retreat in October. You should come. Um, so, for example, Paul says at the very end of Romans, he talks about, in Romans 16, he talks about uh, made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. That's what Paul was about. To bring about the obedience of faith. The ob obedience of faith. What does that mean? The obedience that comes from faith. The obedience that, that genuine faith produces. Paul, or Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2. Of, of, of uh, that God saved us for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty eight, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So when we come to that third point, God blesses our obedience. Don't hear it as if anything is trying to be earned from God by our obedience. We rest in Christ and we rest in his obedience, but it is simply the simple acknowledgement that God smiles on those who strive to be obedient to his word. Okay? That said, let's dive a little more closely into our passage and consider this first general truth. God equips us for his work. Now, like I said, this is a truth that I think we see most clearly in chapter 35 in our old pals Bezalel and Oholiab. And to see that point, look with me again in verses 30 to 35. Uh, then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. He's filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, also a good name, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with, ev- with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by design or by an embroiderer or blue, blue and purple scarlet yarns, fine twine linen, weaver, any sort of workman or skilled designer. Now, like I said, we already met these guys back in chapter 31 told us almost exactly the same thing about them. But when we looked at these two guys in chapter 31, if you were here and remember, I focused more then on this idea that they were filled with the Spirit of God. And this idea that really it was that the point of that passage taught us that really, although he used their hands, it was really the Holy Spirit ultimately who, who built the tabernacle. It was the Holy Spirit who built that place. And we saw the New Testament counterpart to that in the New Testament when it's the Holy Spirit who is building the church. And, 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 and through the spiritual gifts, we'll say more about that in a little bit, through spiritual gifts that he gives believers, we're like the little, we're the built, we're the little living stones in the, in the New Testament tabernacle of church, or church. Here, I want to step back, though, from that particular focus to this more general truth that God equips us. He equips His people for His work. And I find in these verses that we just read just a little bit more than initially meets the eye. Um, Because when you first read these verses, or even when you read them the first time in chapter 31, the emphasis was on these two men and the Holy Spirit who filled them. But I think when you look a little closer you actually see a couple of ways that are highlighted in which God equips his people for his work. So let's, let's start with the obvious one. God gave these uh, meticulously detailed instructions for the corrupt, uh, construction of, of his tabernacle, commanding his people strictly to construct it, strictly according to his command and his instruction. But in, instead of just saying all that and, 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 and then, you know, Maybe there's some guys out there who can do that, right? Uh, God raised up two men in particular, Bezalel and Aholiab, and he filled them with his spirit to, to, to do and to oversee the doing of everything that he commanded to be done. And it says in these verses, by his Holy Spirit, he gave to these two guys skill and intelligence and knowledge and craftsmanship to, to design and to do anything that needed to be accomplished for the building of this tabernacle. He thoroughly equipped him to do it. 
That's what you see here. And you see this same principle, just rehashing some of what we said in chapter 31, we see it come to full fruition in the New Testament. Um, Not just for the individual Christian, but especially for the whole church. We saw just a a few weeks ago a a clear example of this on the individual level from Acts chapter 4. Do you remember when we we talked about the boldness of Peter and John uh, to bear witness uh, before the Sanhedrin in this very intimidating circumstance where they found themselves in uh, this, this Sanhedrin, the authority over their lives are saying, what shall we do with these men? And even though they're standing waiting to see what's going to be done to them, the Holy Spirit in that moment filled them and they were bold to bear witness in that very intimidating circumstance. It was an opportunity to bear witness. Peter and John knew what needed to be done but rather than being cowardly in their own flesh, God provided the Holy Spirit in that moment to do what needed to be done. And Jesus himself had already told them in Matthew 10, 19 and 20, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you're to say. For you're to, what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. He equips us just the same. But it's not just individually. I don't think this passage in in Exodus 35 teaches about just God does that for us individually. He does this corporately, us together as a church. I won't belabor this because we we did talk about it just a few weeks ago, but again, Paul clearly in 1 Corinthians 12 says that that the, uh, talks about different spiritual gifts in the church and, and that how, how are those spiritual gifts apportioned among the church body? He says the Holy Spirit apportions to each one as he will. And so in that way, the whole, you, I have spiritual gifts that you don't have. You have spiritual gifts that I don't have. We need each other to make, it, to make the wheel turn rightly. Um, and in that way, with each person, each Christian individually, the Holy Spirit supernaturally and unilaterally equips you for the work that he's called you to do you might find yourself i also think spiritual gifts are not as static as we make them out to be i think i think they i think they can ebb and flow and so when you find yourself you're not a naturally merciful person god does we we do have people like that you know just not it's not a natural bent of your heart but you might find yourself in a situation in which mercy is what they need and God can, can spiritually put that mercy in you to pour out to them. Right? He equips you individually and supernaturally in a moment to whatever the ministry is that he calls you to. But notice something tucked away in these verses in Exodus 35. Look carefully at what it says in verse 34. Not only did the Holy Spirit fill Bezalel and Oholiab for them to do, But notice verse 34 says, And he has inspired him to teach both him and Oholiab. So clearly, in all the verses up up to that point that we read, these two guys, as skilled and as equipped as they were, did not do all of the work, just those two guys. If they did, who were they teaching and what? Right? It appears that God gifted them but also inspired them to teach others so that they could be equipped with the skill to do the work of the building of the tabernacle. 
so that their efforts could be multiplied among all the people. And without question, that also finds its counterpart, its fullest expression in the New Testament church. Think about what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He says in Ephesians 4, grace was given to each one of us. Each one of us. That's an individual thing. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Christ, by his Spirit, gave gifts to men. That's Ephesians 4, 8, I think. Okay, when you hear gifts right there, in that, don't think gifts that we just talked about in 1 Corinthians 12. He's talking about different gifts. How do we know? Because two verses later, he, sa- he, tell- he says what those gifts are. He says, beginning in verse 11, and he gave, what did he give? What gifts did he give? He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Tall task. But that passage clearly teaches that God has equipped his church for that very thing, not just by gifting them with mercy and service and generosity and all these other spiritual gifts, but he's also gifted them for that purpose with teachers who teach them and, 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 and through, you know, he, he does, he comes just through mercy and discernment and all that, but through gifts of teaching the word of God that through which the whole, in, in situations just like this and the one in the next hour, why do we do this? Not because I'm anything or because Brian is anything, but because God has ordained it's through this right here and through opening his word and teaching his word, the Holy Spirit works through this and molds your mind and heart into the likeness of Jesus. That's why we come again and again. Augustine was famous for this prayer. Lord, command what you will, but grant what you command. Lord, command what you will, but grant what you command. In other words, command whatever you desire of me, Lord. But for anything that you require of me, grant me the ability and the help to do it. And, that, and it's this practical rea- theme and this practical reality that's clearly in the text, both Old Testament and New Testament, that provide the foundation for that prayer, like, which we would do pr- well to pray ourselves. But as you keep reading this passage, we need to move beyond just this general truth that God equips us for his work generally. Because as you keep reading in this, I've already told you, there's one work in particular that, that it just hammers hard. And it's the work of generosity. So the theme we need to think about next is this truth that God equips us for generosity. Ordinarily, if I was teaching this, I would subsume this under the first point. God equips us for his work, for example, the work of generosity, right? But it is so overwhelmingly emphasized in this text in Exodus, I think that we needed to give it its own point and highlight it with the emphasis that it deserves so let's try to see this so we saw this theme come up a couple of weeks ago in chapter 25 in the early verses of chapter 25 it says all the people brought their offerings for the work of building the tabernacle um and uh and 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 and, yeah that's what god told moses to tell the people and here we see them doing it verse 5 of chapter 35 
Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Verse 21, And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and they brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting. Verse 22, all who have a willing heart. Verse 26, whose heart stirred them. Verse 29, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded. I mean, it is, it is simply given such a prominent place here. And it doesn't stop in chapter 35. You come to chapter 36, and especially in verses 2 through 7, you see this emphasis on, on their generosity. In verse 3, they received all the contributions and the people kept bringing more and more and more and more of their own free will. In fact, they had to say, stop. Stop bringing so much. Verse 5 tells us they brought more than enough for doing everything. Verse 7 says, the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Please stop bringing stuff. They just wanted to keep bringing. When I was reading this, and I already said this, it, as I was reading this, it's more than enough. It was sufficient. That, that reminded me of one of my favorite passages on generosity, maybe the best one in all the Bible, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So hold your place here, and I actually want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians 9 because I need to spend just a few minutes here. I thought this would be a good... I'm not, I don't plan to teach through 2 Corinthians anytime soon, so... We're going to put Exodus on pause for just a few minutes and pretend like we're studying through 2 Corinthians 9. And when you get, but we're on this theme of generosity. So what does the New Testament tell us about generosity? When you get to 2 Corinthians 9, look at verses 6 and 7. Paul says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That also is, finds connection to uh, Exodus. Remember, they were of their own free will, of their, who, whose, whose heart stirred them. Nobody was compelling them. They did it of their own free will. And this is how Paul says, yeah, give like that. And there's a lot in those two verses uh, uh, but uh, I need to give you some background before we dive into this. In the chapter just before this one, so 2 Corinthians 8, <laughs> Paul talked about the collection that he was taking. He was taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. They were under hard times. He was taking up a collection from around the different churches to send to them. And now he's coming to the Corinthians to take up that same collection. And he holds before them in 2 Corinthians 8, the model of the churches in Macedonia. So if you're looking at chapter 8, he says in verse 3 that the, these churches in Macedonia, they gave according to their means, and I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in this offering. They gave according to their means, and beyond their means. What does beyond their means mean practically? It means it will not make sense in your budget. You know, your budget tells you what your means are. If you give beyond your means, if you're generous beyond your means, it's not going to make sense in your budget. Okay? In your budget. And in my budget. 
but in God's economy. God has his own economy. It's different. It's different. And so what you have, in, and coming back to chapter 9, what you have is the law of God's economy in terms of generosity. What is the law? It's written down for us. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Who also, whoever sows generously or bountifully will also reap bountifully. That is the operating principle of God's economy. And one thing you see in those verses is an economic vocabulary that we don't, that is often missing in our discussions of generosity. Um, because when we talk about it, we talk about it in terms of giving, 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 giving. And, you know, there's certainly nothing wrong with that because that is what you're doing. And Paul uses that kind of language too. God loves a cheerful giver. So there's nothing wrong with talking about the language of giving, but it's when we only use that kind of language. It's inadequate for God's economy on generosity. Because what kind of terminology does Paul use in verses 6 and 7? Not in giving, but of sowing and of reaping. Sowing and reaping. And you see, when we just talk about giving, it's easy to think about this leaving our hands and us never receiving anything in return. Okay? But the Bible actually never teaches us to... I mean, Jesus does say give and don't expect anything in return, but that's from another person. That's not when we're dealing with God, right? Jesus talked a lot about reward and, and talked about it as a motivation. So to, to, to use Paul's language here in verse 6, we should view generosity in terms of sowing and reaping. He says, he says the reaping is always appropriate to the sowing. Sow nothing, reap nothing. Sow a little, reap a little. Sow a lot, reap a lot. Now, in a minute, when we get to the later verses, uh, Paul is going to give us a clear understanding of what, what kind of reaping we should expect because you can turn on TV and see a lot of false teachers, heretics, who have a wildly paganistic, hedonistic view of reaping. Okay? Paul's going to talk about what reaping actually is. But, he's, but nevertheless, he says, this is the point. You sow to reap. Why? Well, Paul gets to the point in verse 8 of chapter 9. Here's, here, here's, here's where he says, here's how you're going to reap. If you, if, you, if you, Corinthians, if you're like the Macedonians and you not only give, but you give beyond your means, here's what's going to happen. Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This is actually the verse that came to my mind when I read that emphasis in Exodus 36, when he had to say, stop bringing stuff. They had more than enough. It was more than sufficient for the work of the tabernacle. And just like here, I, I, when I read that verse, I'm struck by, by all the alls and the every. All grace, all sufficiency in all things at all times for every good work. It's like a big sign that God is putting in front of you. See this. And again, to, to understand what this all sufficiency and stuff is, you, you, it's, it's, it's helpful to look back at chapter 8 one more time. So, back in chapter, verse 14 of chapter 8, 
Paul was telling the Corinthians about the... He, he says, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. So he's urging them to give generously to the church in Jerusalem. But notice the assurance that he gives to them in verse 15. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. He's quoting the Old Testament. Maybe that sounds familiar to you. Do you know where he's quoting? He's quoting Exodus chapter 16, verse 18, where God provided manna every day for the people. Every day for 40 years, just enough for each day. This, he's leading us somewhere when we think about reaping. When you hear reaping, think manna. Just enough for each day. Exactly what was needed for each day, no more, no less. If they tried to give, get, get too much and save some for the next day, it would, it, it, it would spoil. They couldn't eat it. They simply had to trust the Lord that when tomorrow came, the bread would be there. And Paul quotes the verse from that passage and says there was no lack among any of them. And he quotes that verse in the context of the Corinthians giving generously out of their, their abundance not only is, and it means it twofold, not only if, if they give generously, not only is that like God's manna for those who receive that offering, but, but God in his economy would assure that as that leaves their hands, manna would be provided to them. And in, 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 as Paul says in, in chapter 9, verse 8, all sufficiency in all things at all times in every good work. In the... In the next verse, you go back to chapter 9, and he says in verse 9, after he says you'll have all sufficiency in all things at all times, abound in every good work, look in verse 9. He quotes, it's an Old Testament quote, and what's he quoting? He's quoting Psalm 112, and he's quoting Psalm 112, verse 9. He has distributed, as it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. Who is the he in that verse? He has distributed. He has given. The he in Psalm 112 is the generous man. That's this, this ideal generous man. The generous man has distributed freely. The generous man has given to the poor. If you flip, if, I'm not asking you to because we're running out of time. Oh, man. Um, but if you did turn back to Psalm 112, you would also see it said this about that generous man. Psalm 112 says of the generous man in verse 7, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Sometimes when we want to be generous and we say, maybe we'll give this, but sometimes the hesitancy is, but if, I, if this money leaves me and something bad happens, I won't have the money to deal with it. The scripture says the generous man is not afraid of bad news. He gives generously, right? And now you take that idea in 2 Corinthians 9. This is how God is going to, you trust God. He's going to give you all sufficiency at all times in every good work. What's that going to look like? Oh, man, verse 10. He says, he who supplies seed to the sower. This is what reaping looks like. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. 
Okay, so let's, who, who supplies? He says, he who supplies. Who is that? Who is the one who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food? Easy preschool. God, that's the answer. God is the one who supplies your seed for, you know, all your seed and your bread. But what does it say he will do when we are generous? He will supply your and multiply your seed for sowing. He will multiply your seed for sowing. That's where the prosperity preachers go awry. Because God's purpose in whatever we reap is that now I have more seed that I can sow with. Like we don't we don't reap seed for saving, we reap seed for sowing. And that simply means ongoing blessing. And in fact, he says at the end of verse 10, it will increase the harvest of your righteousness. And he's going to outline what that looks like in the next verses. We'll have to motor through these. In verse 11, one, one, one uh, result is, it reiterates what he already says. Verse 11, we'll be enriched in every way for all our generosity. God will give us the manna that we need. But in the second part of verse 11, part of the harvest will be that God is more greatly glorified when we're generous this way. It says it will produce thanksgiving to God. It says that again in verse 13. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and others. It is more satisfying to lead others to praise God than to praise ourselves. Paul says generosity leads people to praise and thank God for his provision through you. Verse 12 says that, that that part of the harvest is the joy of seeing people's needs met. Verse 14 says part of the harvest that we reap from that is that we will be more greatly loved and prayed for by those who receive our generosity. Not that that's what we seek, but it is what we receive. Paul says in verse 14, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. That's fun. That's fun to have people love you and pray for you. And then it comes through your obedience and generosity like the Macedonian church did. God equips us for his good work, even for the work of ongoing generosity, even when that's done according to God's economy and we give beyond our means to that work. Well, that leads very quickly to the last point. So let's go back to Exodus. And this time, chapter 39 to reinforce this last point, the Lord blesses our obedience. The Lord blesses our obedience. This seems to be the emphasis of chapters 39 to 40. Let's see it in a couple of ways and wrap this thing up. Notice in chapter 39 the emphasis that it lays on the actions of all the people. So look at verse 32. Thus... All the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel, all of them, did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Now look down at verses 42 and 43. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. I mean... You get what it's saying? <laughs> I mean, it's hard to believe, by the way, after the golden calf episode, but like, 
apparently God's discipline was effective. But they, that's the people. I mean, you can't miss it. At, behold, they did it. And then notice in the next chapter, in chapter 40, it moves from all the people specifically to Moses. So look at verse, six, verse 16 in chapter 40. This Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So he did. And then I tried to emphasize this when I was reading this. That is followed by a sevenfold repetition. I don't think that's coincidental. A sevenfold repetition of this phrase, as the Lord had commanded Moses. As the Lord had commanded Moses. You see it in verse 19, verse 21, verse 23, verse 25, verse 27, verse 29, and verse 32. As the Lord had commanded him, so Moses did. All was done as the Lord had commanded. And as a result of their obedience, given as the climax and the conclusion of this book, was that the manifest presence of the glory of God descended as a cloud on the tabernacle, and they enjoyed the glory of his presence among them. We certainly have this promise in Christ that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And that's true because of his perfect obedience. Whereas they, the, they had the risk of Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed, we don't have that risk because Jesus was perfect in our place. And we are in him. But we also have this assurance that it's true for them as well, that when we sincerely pursue obedience to his word, he will add his blessing to our way. It's true. i got to close with this because we're out of time. It's, it's like the old hymn teaches us. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. Let us do his good will. He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for um, this, this word. And I, I pray that, um, as I prayed at the beginning, that you would give us all that we ask to see, eyes and minds and hearts and wills. Perhaps it felt a bit like we, we jumped around a little bit, but I, I, I genuinely, genuinely believe, Lord, we tried to see what you led us to see in those verses. Um, not just the general truth that you, 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 you equip us for your work and you bless us when we obey, but for your own purposes and reasons, you brought very highly in the forefront this work of generosity. And I pray that we would meditate for a long time on how they gave in Exodus and the word that we heard in 2 Corinthians 9, 8 and 9. I don't know who needed to hear that. Maybe we all did. Certainly we all did. But maybe some in particular uh, needed to hear um, and be reminded of your truth about our financial and physical resources. That we, we have our budgets. And we have our ways. Uh, our, we have our economy that we live in, but that's not the, the end of the story. 
that we're called to live our lives and manage our, our resources according to the economy that you have set out for us and walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, thank you for this word and this exhortation. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.